Hold on to your butt. Welcome to episode 45 of the Civil War Breakfast Club podcast. Joined as always by Mary, the queen of Kin Cardine. I am only Darren and just happy to be here. Ready, yeah. ready to get back to the, I guess we're back in the old Western theater again today. But first of all, um, what are we drinking? Well, I, I guess I will go first. I'm drinking Death Metal by Trillium because it says death in it. And we're talking about the Battle of Kennesaw. <laughs> and I'm drinking out of our brand new shiny Silver Art Breakfast Club koozie where you can go on Zazzle where you can get all your Breakfast Club needs. And you can buy a koozie and you can buy a t-shirt. And now we also have coffee mugs as well as our stickers. So that's what yeah. I'm doing. I got it in the mail today. And you know what? I said, screw it. I'm going to bring it on the podcast. I'm going to bring it on to our, it's maiden voyage on this podcast. So. Yep. Yeah, we definitely have merch yet. And as Darren says, it's available on Zazzle. Anyway, um, so yeah. So what are you drinking? Um, I'm drinking Good Monster by Collective Arts. It's a 8% uh, New England double India Pale Ale, whatever that means. And I, But I'm drinking it out of my... Sherman in Atlanta, Atlanta's original torchbearer mug. Uh, the Battle of Kennesaw Mountain is part of the Atlanta campaign. So, and a little did I know this beer is ten percent. So nice. I'm gonna drink this one. Drink this one slower. <laughs> we'll be, we'll be, uh, Atlanta might burn again. <laughs> anyway, so yeah. So as you hinted at, we are talking about the Battle of Kennesaw Mountain, which is one of my favorites because me um, too. I visited there and I've walked the whole area and it's really, really cool. So I don't want to say it's underrated and perhaps definitely understudied and underappreciated by a lot of people. But I think it's one that most people understand when they hear the word Kennesaw Mountain. If they don't think of Mountain Kennesaw Mountain Land as the baseball guy, yeah. they think about this battle. So I think that's a good idea before you get into the meat and potatoes of this battle to talk about what why it's important. You know, what is the deal with this? So this is the beginning of the Atlantic campaign. So Atlanta's in Georgia, Mary, in case you haven't figured that out. Well, I, I am geog- good at geography. Problem. So <laughs> Georgia's theoretically in the West, but it's really in the, yeah, you know. But so Atlanta, you know, this the timing is important. We're talking summer, spring of 1864. The election looms. The Democrats took a lot of seats in the midterms of 62. It's a lot of anti-Lincoln sentiment. Mm-hmm. Lincoln is afraid he's going to lose the election. And if he loses the election, they're going to lose the war. We're going to talk about the two-pronged East and West thing that's going on with Grant and Sherman throughout that summer. But again, it's in the West, we're going to talk about Atlanta because Atlanta is something the Union has to have. It's mandatory for Lincoln's election hopes in 1864. Once they take Atlanta, it's going to set up that march to the sea that we that you love so much. <laughs> and if there's no Atlanta capture, there's no march. And so everything kind of falls back Atlanta. Atlanta is you know, they said Lincoln said that Vicksburg is the key, but really Atlanta is the key. Yep. Atlanta is the is the must must have of the Civil War, based on the facts of when it's happening in 1864. So, by the end of 63, the Union Army is doing pretty well in the West. You know, we talked before about Tennessee's under control of the Union. They have the big victory in November at the Battle of Ch- uh, Chattanooga, coming off that loss at Chickamauga. Mm-hmm. The great Braxton Bragg, Mary, has been pushed all the way back into Georgia now. So, so things are looking pretty good. William T. Sherman, perhaps you've heard of him. He takes command of the Western armies because Grant is named that commander of all the Union armies. And he's going to go east and he's going to begin his overland campaign. As you know, Sherman and Grant are best buds. And so now you're going to have this east and west surf and turf thing going. That's going to be taking place where you have a real strong leadership between both armies in the east and the west with that mutual goal. I mean, admittedly, it's Grant to beat Lee for Johnston to get beat by Sherman. But the short-term goals would be for Lee to take, obviously, Richmond and for 
Atlanta to fall to Sherman. So that's kind of what's going on. Can't say as much on the Confederate side because they're kind of a mess. Mm-hmm. You know, Joseph Johnson, who was hated, hated Mary by Jefferson Davis. He's hated, right? He's going to replace Braxton Bragg in the Army of Tennessee. And Braxton is loved by Jefferson Davis. Funny how that works. But they just, so now you've got a guy in charge mm-hmm. who feels like he has the microscope on him. Because, yeah. Well, um, Braxton is going to become oh, Braxy, as we call him on the podcast, and as Jacob now calls him as well, um, from our friend over at the History Book Podcast. He is going to become like a military advisor to Jeff- to President Jefferson Davis um, after he kind of gets ousted, which is, again, a surprising move under Davis's part. But yeah, Atlanta campaign begins when Sherman departs. Um, some places say from the Chattanooga area, but it's actually from Ringgold Gap, Georgia that he departs from um there's actually a plaque there that you can go to and he's uh there with his uh other quote-unquote best friend patrick claiborne (laughs) there's a statue of claiborne there which i swear somebody put there as a joke you know (laughs) so claiborne get the last laugh in that but yeah as you said like yes atlanta is the key to this but he's still got to get there and Uh at the time his objective at this point in the atlanta campaign that we're going to be talking about end of June 1864, his objective is still more to try and destroy Johnston's army. Oh, Lincoln said over and over again, it's not Richmond, it's it's Lee, and it's yeah. kind of the same thing with them. Now, it's mentioned, you mentioned getting to a land is the thing. Now, it's interesting, in a later Sherman will live off the land on his march to the sea going mm-hmm. through the Carolinas, and that, that's what's going to happen. But for this one, he's going to have to re- rely to get into Atlanta on supply lines. He, there's no rivers where he's going. So he has to follow the railroad. That's the Western Atlantic Railroad. He has this, that's a supply line. He's going to have a gigantic army, really three armies with him. So just to set the stage a little bit, but 100,000 guys split into three armies the Army of the Tennessee by James Birdsey McPherson, mm-hmm. the Army of the Cumberland by the Georgia Plymouth Rock of Thomas, right? <laughs> and Army of the Ohio by John Schofield. So on the other side of the Army of Tennessee, with about 60,000, not to be confused with the Army of the Tennessee. The, um, the creative teams on uh, the PR department and no, the Union and the Confederacy was not, they're not winning points here. No. So it, it, they have three corps under William Hardy, uh, John Bell Hood, and Leonidas Polk, who's going to be killed along the way. We'll talk about this. And he's going to be replaced a couple of times by the gets at Kennesaw Mountain. Sure, we mentioned he wants to beat Johnston. And he wants to move into Atlanta. Johnson, as we mentioned, he feels like he's got Jefferson Davis's thumb on him. Mm-hmm. And he did anyway, because yeah. he looked at everybody. So he knows he has to stop Sherman. And he has to find solid defensive ground in Georgia to do so. Obviously, what you want to do in this situation is you want to find a good defensive place and force your enemy to attack you. And then launch a counterattack. And that's kind of military 101 what he wants to do. So to your point, on May 5th, 1864... They are going to leave Ringgold Gap. Mm-hmm. They're going to go into those mountains towards Atlanta. Johnston is going to initially set up in a place called Dalton, Georgia, right? He will fall back. And what's interesting is you're going to see the beginning of Sherman's flank you opportunities that he's yeah. going to be doing here, right? So instead of attacking, he's going to go try to go around and flank and maneuver. And that's going to be the mainstay of his game plan in this entire campaign. He doesn't want to fight Johnston if he else he has to. He wants to go around him, but he has to stay along that railroad. And that's the challenge. As we get into, into May here, he's going to send McPherson's Army of the Tennessee around Johnston. Uh, and they're going to and it's going to work. They're going to force him to leave that strong defensive place in Dalton. 
they're going to fall back to Resaca, Georgia, is where they're going to end up falling back. Now, on May 14th, we'll talk briefly about the setup, is you have that Battle of Resaca, right? So it's the first Battle of Sherman's Atlanta campaign. So, and that's going to continue along. By the end of May of 64, the armies reach a place called the Hell Hole of Georgia, which sounds wonderful. <laughs> this sounds like a fun, fun place. Sherman's going to keep doing his maneuvering around uh, along that Western Atlantic Railroad. But he's going to leave the railroad at this point, and it's going to be the beginning of things to come going forward. But he has to do so because he has to outflank Johnston again. He wants to get completely around him, and he pulls it off again. Now he ends up in a place called Dallas, Georgia. And this is what's going to set up that triumvirate of battles they have, the Battle of New Hope Church, Pickett's Mill, and Dallas, which are all brutal fights, every mm-hmm. single one of them. And it was a situation where... Sherman flanked, Johnson would try to withdraw and block him. And that was that's kind of a nutshell what those battles were. Yeah. It continued on as we headed into um into June. So he's making his way closer and closer to Kennesaw. And by June 19th, this is when Johnston is actually starting to be set up at Kennesaw. So he's in a seven-mile-long defensive line, and they are interestingly enough in a crescent formation along on Kennesaw Mountain. And it's about it's what, 25 miles from Atlanta? Is that how? About 25 yeah. miles from Georgia. The guys that are yeah. about 60 or so miles, but it's just to the, to the west of Marietta, Georgia. Mm-hmm. And, and what's beautiful about this plan, about this location, I mean, is the railroad is right behind it. So if you talk about a crescent, it's, it'd be like that star right next to it, yeah. inside of it. So they, ha- they had to kind of get through it. So Kennesaw Mountain, real quick, it's um, it's really a couple of different mountains. It's a big Kennesaw mm-hmm. Mountain and a little Kennesaw Mountain. They, they pretty much dominate the area. It's a very popular place today if you go to Georgia. it's If you fly in or out of Atlanta, it's the only piece of green land you'll see. Yep. It is Kennesaw Mountain. Yep. It's a I gigantic drove by place. so many times as a kid on the way down to Florida. Mm-hmm. And always said, can we please stop? There was a battle there. And every single time I got the nope, we have to keep going. Well, you know, one of those prison buses, of course, they can't stop. So Probably was. But Kennesaw Mountain, you think about it, it's a perfect terrain for Johnson. It's your point, set up that defense. So blocks the railroad, what he's relying on supplies on. It's a gigantic mountain. I mean, it's like 1,800 feet above sea yeah. level. It's, it's a strong mountain. And it's interesting, though, because one part of it is dense forest, kind of like Culp's Hill. Then you get part of it like the, like Pigeon Hill, which is kind of all rocky. It's kind of like the moon in a mm, way. Yeah. So it's got these weird terrains. But, but Johnston, he knew this was the place to find defensive battle, and that this was made tail, you know, you know, Hollywood casting for a defensive battle. And so he sets up that thing that you mentioned a bit ago called the Kennesaw Line. Yeah. The Kennesaw Line is basically a seven mile tretch of tretch of trenches. Tretch? Tretch. Tretch. What is a tretch? Don't hear a niner in there. But is that on Urban Dictionary? That's probably something on Urban Dictionary, I'm sure. Tretch. It's a, a seven miles of trenches uh, in breastworks built by the rebels. Now, the thing about it, though, is that they have time, and we'll talk about this. It's going to take a little bit of time for this battle to start. And while this is going on, they are going to be digging and digging and digging. Mm-hmm. So, Right around here on June 14th, you have a little bit of tragedy for the Rebs when Leonidas Polk is going to be killed, right? Yep. He's going to be standing um, standing on a hill, and some Union soldiers are going to spot him and some officers, and they're going to fire yep. some artillery at him, and uh, he ain't going to make it. Yep. Those right? Union soldiers are led by Howard, too. Yeah, well, we'll get to him. We'll yep. talk about him. But they're on a place called Pine Mountain is where mm-hmm. they're going to be. 
initially, of course, William Loring is going to take over and he's going to get replaced by Alexander Stewart by the battle. We'll talk a little bit about them in a little bit. On June 19th, they're going to get to Kennesaw Mountain. And you're going to have these daily fights, these little skirmishes here and there that are going to take place. But they're going to take their toll on the Union Army because they're just they're there. They can't move. Yeah. They've been they've been in campaign. And on the rebels, they've got these fantastic the, the breastworks. I mean, they're real and they're spectacular. Here, you've seen them. I mean, they really, really are. I mean, they have is that a Seinfeld they're, they're, reference. It is. It is. <laughs> Not so. You know, so they, they're Pop digging culture? deep. They're 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 piling these like six foot tall logs with these headboards, mm-hmm. and it's a fantastic defensive position. Yeah. And and they're really dug into the landscape. And if you visit Kennesaw Mountain today, if that prison bus ever lets you off, <laughs> okay, you will see them. And they're it's something because you swear if they're rebuilt and they're not. And it's yeah. amazing. I was listening um, to um, Hess's book on Kennesaw Mountain, which I highly recommend. I well, I listened to the audiobook, but reading it too. Um, he talks a little bit about the geography of Kennesaw Mountain. He says the reason that they're so well preserved is because of the the kind of the red clay soil that is in Georgia. Obviously, it's different type of geography than what you see in the Eastern Theater, but that's one reason why they're so well preserved. And the other reason, too, is because soon after the battle, they began to do this kind of the preservation work on it. Howard, he, he writes a lot of this about the geography in his memoirs and he said that Johnson could not have found a stronger defensive position for his great army so like Howard sets this up that they're going to go into this and it's going to be an absolute disaster and he says that um, the confederate entrenchments or breastworks were everywhere and whatever you call and he said whatever you call those protecting protecting contrivances were excellent like how like like as you said they're very very well built they've had plenty of time to do this and because of that the morale in the confederate army is actually quite high at this point like they're saying oh we've got this blah 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 but over on the union side of things and we'll see this in a couple minutes from some stuff some quotes i've got from sherman um morale is not as good the men are writing like we're fighting so many battles like it's just been one like you know even if it's just light squirmishing it's constant but they're experiencing that on both sides. So each side is slowly losing men. But as we're going to talk about with this battle, you know, Sherman makes a decision at Kennesaw that you and I have talked about offline, you know, about the numbers that he throws into it. But it's probably because of this that he's been slowly bleeding men throughout this campaign. Yeah, absolutely. And what you hinted at a few minutes ago is to a, just to a mental temperature check on these two armies at this point you, it was night and day mm-hmm. you know the rebs to your point are sky high they're ready to fight they want to kick these yankees out of the state they get them they want to push them off the union they're punchy they're anxious their soldiers are getting in fist fights in the camp they just want to do something they're stuck they can't move and this includes sherman i mean mm-hmm. sherman's sick of sitting around and things say what you will about old uncle billy okay is he's Imagine bouncing off the walls. He, he just doesn't want to stick around. So he finally gets sick of it. And he want, he, he says, well, we're going to have to try to flank Johnson again. We're going to mm-hmm. have to try. He's going to send Joseph Hooker as well as John Schofield on that rebel left to see if to probe that line to find a weak spot. But this time, Johnston is sick of the flanking. He's sick of it. Okay. So he knew Sherman was probably going to do that. So what does mm-hmm. he do? He puts John Bell Hood down there. He takes uh, Hood's Corps and puts him on the southern end on June 22nd. And this is going to be with Carter Stevenson and Thomas Hinman. About 14,000, 15,000 guys he puts to block them. So he puts them in a defensive position. But Hood, as you know, ain't very defensive, Mary. Nope. So he says, screw this. I'm attacking. 
So yeah. Clinton's going to be aggressive, and he's going to end up at a place called Powder Springs Road. And he's going to meet the Union forces. He's going to run out at them at a place at Peter Cobb's Farm. And this is going to be the Battle of Cobb's Farm on June 22nd, right around dinner time. So you've got Hood's Corps, which is Stevenson and Hinman, versus Schofield, uh, his Army of Ohio, with the, with the, the um, 22nd Corps, as well as Hooker's 20th Corps. So 15,000 guys. You have almost 30,000 guys at this little skirmish mm-hmm. thing. And the Rebs get their asses kicked. They take 1,500 casualties to the Union, about 500. Uh, there was some train issues, all kinds of issues yeah. they had. But Sherman knows now that Hood is there. So even though they won that and they they kind of pushed them back a little bit, they know flanking ain't going to happen this time. So no. he's like, well, what am I going to do? He calls Miss Cleo and asks for her advice. <laughs> And so Sherman, Sherman is, is in, but to, pick, to picture Sherman here for a second, he's about, he's been on this march for about six weeks. Yeah. He's been going for a while. They're about 20 miles out of Atlanta. They can probably smell the barbecue from Fox Brothers barbecue in Atlanta <laughs> at this point. They're that close, right? He's sick of sitting around. He's also worried about the supplies. He's sitting around one day, probably whittling. He realizes, okay, I can't flank. I'm going to need to attack. I'm going to have to. Yeah. He, you know, he, he's thinking, all right, well, I got more guys than Johnston. Yeah, they're in a good position, but I'm thinking, well, I know Hood is blocked our flank and we have more guys. So I bet their lines are probably thin. If they're mm-hmm. covering as much territory as I think they're going to, I think we could Kool-Aid man right through that <laughs> line. I think we can. So he basically says, you know what? Screw it. He pulls out a penny right, special order number 28, which is his we're attacking thing. So yeah. George Thomas, probably in his Debbie Downer voice, he says, well, you know, the troops are fatigued due to the operations these last yep. four days. Like, we shouldn't be doing this. Sherman sarcastically looks at him and says, well, I suppose the enemy with the smaller numbers intends to surround us. I waited for the laugh that didn't come. Yep. But he says, but the day after tomorrow, I intend to break through. Thomas probably wouldn't to go play with this rock he picked up over there at Chickamauga Pride. <laughs> but, but Sherman at this point knows he's going to attack. So he's going mm-hmm. to put in the Special Order 28. And we'll talk about the details of it, of what that Special Order actually is. Yeah. And it's um, before he does this, he actually writes to, to Washington and he says, the whole country is one vast fort and Johnston must have 50 miles of connected trenches with Abat- Abatis. Abatis, thank you. Abatis. And Finnish batteries. We gain good ground daily fighting all the time. Our lines are now in close contact of the fighting incessant with a good deal of artillery. As fast as we gain one position, though, the enemy has already another. Kennesaw is the key to the whole country. This is why, like, Kennesaw kind of sometimes, I, I, you know, it's not talked about very much. It seems to almost be like sometimes it's like a footnote in the, the whole Atlanta campaign when it comes to looking at, like, the March of the Sea but you're seeing the importance of it here with what Sherman is saying to Washington that he absolutely has to to have this. After he issues special order number 28, um, he actually writes to his wife, Ellen. And this was a letter that was like not for public consumption at all. But he said, my lines are 10 miles long and every change necessitating a larger amount of work. Still, we are now all ready and I must direct attack on the position. Both will be attended with loss and difficulty but one or the other must be attended. So he you knows. Know what else he, he, he says to Ellen, he says, Johnston is afraid to attack me. He says, in that wow. Letter. He says, you know, he's afraid to attack me. I must attack directly or turn my position. So he's telling his wife, 
I need to attack or I need to go back. Okay, yeah. so Special Route 28. In a nutshell, here's the game plan. James McPherson's Army of the Tennessee is going to be on the north side, and they're going to basically be a diversionary attack. So they're going to, you, know, you have to picture that the, the, the Tennessee Mountain goes north to south. So they're going to be around the north, mm-hmm. and that's not where the primary attack is going to be. So they're going to feint the attack there to keep troops in that area. Okay, they're going to demonstrate a big Tennessee Mountain with uh, Blair's um, 17th Corps, Grenville Dodge's 16th Corps. They're going to use those guys. They're going to attack a little bit south on Little Kennesaw Mountain and Pigeon Hill. This is where Blackjack Logan's 15th Corps are going to fight. We'll talk about that. Guys like Peter Osterhoff, the names we've talked about in the past. The primary attack, because that's still a secondary attack. The primary, the meat and potatoes of this attack and this battle is going to be south of Pigeon Hill. And he's going to use George Thomas's Army of the Cumberland, 12,000 guys, to attack the Rebs or, or William Hardy's Corps. And that's going to be the place that we're going to talk about with Cheatham Hill later on. That's pretty much in a nutshell what it's going to be. We're going to, we're going to, we're going to use some soldiers with Blair and Granville Dodge. You're trying to keep Johnston honest so they don't take all mm-hmm. the troops out of there and bring them down. We're going to try to pin them there. We're going to demonstrate with artillery. You know, we're going to use Blackjack to attack that Pigeon Hill area, that, that rocky moon-like area where they're going to attack. And then all at the same time, Thomas's Army of the Cumberland is going to go full speed at the south at Cheatham Hill. Yeah. Because that's where he thinks the line is weak. He thinks that we can break through there. And the goal, if you break through, is then you got him, right? You bro- you broke the line, you're gonna force him to scatter, and then you got it. And then then you know, off top to a lane. Sherman's go. gonna get um, um clay burned. He will. But he's thinking he's gonna break more Atlanta Hearts than Tom Brady if he <laughs> get to that line. So that's what he's thinking of doing. June 26th, the day before the battle, Sherman is formulating his plan. Now he doesn't tell the soldiers that this is happening that this is the thing he needs to keep it secret so they know something's up and mm-hmm. the rebs know something's up because they're both been digging in now for a couple of days sherman had to know they were going to take big losses he had to based on the experience against john bell Hood, he right? had to he and knew. he he writes that to you know he's writing to ellen saying that this this battle is going to result in a lot of losses which mm-hmm. i think factors into you know what we're going to discuss here with the numbers in a few minutes like the numbers that he sends in he already knows it's going to be a disaster, so and he's been slowly losing men throughout this campaign. He has to play it, not really, I wouldn't say cautiously, but he knows there's going to be, it's not going to be good. Now, you know, obviously Thomas had already hinted the fact that this is probably not a good idea. Mm-hmm. This is a bad idea, Gene's commercial, waiting to happen. Yeah. That's what he's thinking. Now, Oliver Otis Howard, okay, well, we'll do a little Monday morning quarterbacking after this battle and talk about this battle. Right. Yep. Now he's going to be in the thick of it. Now he's going to have a lot of a big say in it when we get to that Cheatham Hill part of it. But I, I, I don't want to steal your thunder and steal his quotes for old OO. <laughs> you know, he saw the writing on the wall, but especially after the battle, he made some comparisons to other battles he's been to. Yep, absolutely. He did. Yeah. He he compares it quite a bit to Gettysburg. He's going to be going up. He's one of the ones that's going to be going up against um, Claiborne's men. Howard yeah. says that, like, the geography of this battle definitely played against them because just the and the breastworks like like our want of success like we couldn't do it because of the thickets and and just the the undergrowth. June twenty seventh, eighteen sixty four is the day. This is the day of the battle. Mm-hmm. The battle kind of some on for the most part is one day. Early in the morning, you know, Logan's going to begin his attack. Um, on Little Kennesaw and Pigeon Hill, while McPherson demonstrates on Big Kennesaw, just like we said a second mm-hmm. ago. Thomas's Army of the Cumberland, the main attack, is on that center of the of the line of, of south of the mountain. And about 8 o'clock in the morning, the battle begins on Big Kennesaw. The skirmishers attack, so you have guys like Walter Gresham and Mortimer Leggett from uh, Blair's 
17th Corps, the division commanders, Gresham and Leggett, like they're going to begin that skirmishing to keep those troops there is what they're going to do. Mm-hmm. They want to distract Johnson and keep him honest is what they want to do. The Army of the Tennessee McPherson, he's going to begin that attack on Pigeon Hill and uh, so Little Kennesaw with Black Jack Logan's 15th Corps, as we mentioned. So this is that rocky, moonlight place where it's just tough terrain. So you go from woods to just flat bald rocks it's just, it's yeah. just the toughest ravines it's really a tough place to be and not to mention those rebel breastworks that we talked about yeah. so it gets worse and worse and worse it does so you're gonna you have five thousand guys going against eleven thousand entrenched confederates who are itching for a fight and they got the natural terrain they got the fake terrain they got the high ground they got the rosewoods clown <laughs> yeah they got everything they've got the entire thing so Little Kennesaw and Pigeon Hill, um, the Union's going to need to climb that. They're going to climb that wooded, rocky mm-hmm. terrain just to get up there. And it's it's like Culp's Hill, but 10 times worse. Mm-hmm. So you're going to have William Harrow's 4th Division. You're going to have three brigades. You're going to have, um, and from Morgan Smith's 2nd Division, from Giles Smith, uh, Joseph Lightburn, and Charles Walcott. They're going to be attacking Pigeon Hill is what they're going to be doing. Um, and they're going to be all going up against a bunch of guys like Francis Cockrell, those Missouri guys. And you're going to be fighting real strong guys. And it's funny, at Culp's Hill, you had the Maryland versus Maryland battles. Yep. Yep. The second one. Here you have Missouri versus Missouri. So it's kind of funny how, mm-hmm. how history Yeah, was. the two. Yeah, the the. Right. I found that really interesting because Hess talks about that in, in his book about Kennesaw Mountain. And it's just a real bloody knockdown drag out fight. Mm-hmm. By 10 o'clock in the morning, it's failed. So Pigeon Hill's failing. The feds are falling back, retreating. They took 600 casualties in two hours from Lightburn, Smith, and Walcott's brigades. They had completely cut up. They're retreating confusion. They're running down the hill. They're YOLO, the hell with this, yeah. you know. But that's just the diversionary attack. That's a secondary attack. The mm-hmm. primary assault is happening around the same time. Now, this is what we talk about Cheatham Hill. This is Cheatham where Howard Hill, makes his comparison, actually, right, to right. Um, to Cemetery Hill, where he says, Johnston did well to go up there um, because here he had in battle similar advantages that over Sherman than Meade had over the famous Cemetery Hill. So he doesn't don't They're going to meet a place called Cheatham Hill, and it wasn't called Cheatham Hill at the time. And I don't want to spoil the ending, but they don't usually name hills after people who lose battles. So I'll let you know who figured this one out. But it's going to be on Cheatham Hill. Now it's going to be it's going to have problems right at the beginning because for one. The artillery starts at 8 o'clock in the morning, and the, the infantry doesn't start for about an hour later. So it's mm-hmm. already kind of screwed up. So you, the Confederates are going to have Cheatham's division, Benjamin Cheatham as well as Patrick Claiborne. These two divisions, Cheatham and Claiborne, we've talked before, are very battle-tested. They're very tough. They're hard-fighting guys. And they held that position on South of Kennesaw Mountain. Now, the terrain, we'll talk about this real quick, is a little bit different. Now, it's not the high, sloping mountains or the mm-hmm. rocks. What you have is woods and you have a slow undulation as they say mary in a clear in in clear field so you have an easier path but it's clear right so the rebs had extremely strong entrenchments now they have a couple different mistakes with how they set that up in here in a minute but you got five union brigades with old howard's fourth corps and john palmer's 14th corps right and versus versus um cheatham hill now the red breast works with those abatis i'll say it correctly (laughs) They put those there to slow the Union advance. Now, Cheatham Hill is going to be kind of screwed up in a way because when they dug in the breastworks, they put them on the crest. They didn't put them on the military slope, which means it created a blind spot, which means if you could make it to about 50 yards of the breastworks, they couldn't hit you. 
it would they couldn't depress the cannon and they couldn't aim the muskets that low. The closer you got, the better you were. And we'll talk about that here in a few in a few minutes. So on Cheatham Hill, you got Claiborne is, is going to be on the right, and Cheatham is going to be on the rebel left. Mm-hmm. Now all of Rodas Howard, Fourth Corps, so he's not the half moon anymore, he's not the eleventh <laughs> corps. And the stories of the soldiers saw the position and they just said, Well, one of them said we're either going to die or we're going to a southern prison. Yeah. That that was the yep. choice. What what's happened? One or the other. Yeah. And, and Howard now, took one look at it and he said Kennesaw was more difficult than any portion of Gettysburg Cemetery or Little Round Top and quite impossible mm-hmm. to take. So that's yeah. what they're that's what they're going into with this. On the Confederate side of things, you have Sam Watkins, who is he writes quite a bit about this battle. Um, And he says at the beginning of this part before the men get there, he said it was absolutely calm on the but on the distant hills, he says hills, you can plainly see them running around, you can see the stars and stripes and all that. And then they start to hear the rumbling of the guns around eight o'clock in the morning and the distant marching army. And they knew they were coming for them. Mm-hmm. So the guns start at eight o'clock in there's about an hour. And it's almost like pickets charge in reverse a little bit. So at nine o'clock in the morning, the soldiers are sitting in the woods just waiting to go. And they're sitting there just they're just waiting for those orders. So the Rebs, they said, you know, after the battle, they, as soon as the fourth corps of guys emerged from those woods, it was like the world was coming to an end. It was yeah. just it was loud as hell. It was an Arkansas soldier named Private Barnes. He said it sounded like we had a hundred cannons, not eight. And he says, one would have imagined Vesuvius had moved to the Confederate States of America. Yeah. So you can imagine just how loud this was. Captain Robert D. Smith of Patrick Claiborne's staff, he said, speaking of that fourth corps, the slaughter was horrific as our troops literally mowed them down. So yeah. they're coming through that Sheetham Hill getting ripped up. Now, this is where we bring up the story of Charles Harker. Okay. Charles Harker, mm-hmm. 28 years old. He is in the 3rd Brigade under, under Newton's 2nd Division of the 4th yeah. Corps. You know the story, but he was offered a spot to be the chief of staff for Oliver Otis Howard. Yeah. For whatever reason, he decided he didn't want it. Yep. He and, and Howard was really disappointed, but he he understood how he felt about that. Howard said of him that the only complaint I ever heard um, was that if Harker got started against the enemy, he could not be held back, and that's ultimately why he he meets his demise here. Harker is a guy that has been in the Civil War from the beginning. You know, he's been at Shiloh, Siege of Corinth, Perryville, Stones River, Chickamauga, Chattanooga, Siege of Knoxville as well. Um, During the Atlanta campaign, he's going to be commanding a brigade under Howard. But as you said, he's offered a position as his chief of staff. He fights at Rocky Face, Risaka, Dallas, and Muddy Creek. And so he's gone up against Patrick Claiborne before and probably Cheatham as well. So he will charge the Tennessee Brigade of General Alfred Vaughn, and he will be repulsed, but then he'll charge again and be mortally wounded. And he's riding a white horse while he's doing this, and he's going to be struck in the arm in the chest. And he will be one of quite a few officers from the 4th Corps and, and from the Union Army that, that are killed in this fighting here. Well, and I mean, feel bad, but I mean, Howard was, was more disappointed that Harker turned that position down than if he broke a lace on his night. Yeah, he really, okay. really, he, he, he just really was, right? wanted him, but he un- but he understood why. Like he says of Harker, whenever anything difficult was to be done, anything that required pluck and energy, we called on mm-hmm. Harker. So Harker, you know, he's the fourth course is breaking and he yeah. is riding on that white horse to your point. He's literally holding his hat above his head. Mm-hmm. 
charging those 10 yep. scenes of Vaughn, right? You talk to you talk to the, tw- the 11th, the 12th, the 47th Tennessee. Ah, these are hard fighting guys. He's going right into them and, and he's obviously not going to make it. But if you go to Cheatham Hill, you can see the monument for Harker, which is mm-hmm. still there at the, at the place where he gets, he gets shot. So the fourth corps is going to get Paul's pretty easily by these guys. And the battle is going to kind of commence a little bit south at a place called the Dead Angle. Now, this is the more famous of the Cheatham Hill battles in yeah. Italy. Now, this is a couple, just a couple hundred yards south where the fourth corps got pushed back. The terrain is a lot different in this one. It's very manageable. But when you come out of the woods, you're in a clearing and you go up a slow slope that heads right into these rebel breastworks with that blind spot I mentioned a bit ago. And to be a soldier, to march up that hill in the full clearing, it takes a different guy. Because I don't know, if you walk it, it's amazing that the people actually mm-hmm. did that. The rebel breastworks are placed, like I said, on the crest of that hill. So it creates that blind spot. So it gives them a little bit of safety if they will, if they want it. So you're talking the 14th Corps now. You're talking John Palmer. You're talking the two brigades under Jefferson Davis's division. General Reb. General Reb, okay, Colonel John Mitchell and Colonel Daniel McCook, who we're going to talk about here in painful detail in a few minutes. They're going to attack that open slope of the dead angle. It's just it's just think of the angle at Gettysburg, kind of, except it's worse. Mm-hmm. That's kind of how it is. Dan McCook, we'll talk about him real quick. Dan, Dan McCook Jr., to be exact. Yep. Fighting he's the son of, a, son of a military, the fighting McCooks. His father enlisted in the Union Army at age 65, Mary. Okay, he was killed at age uh, 63. Rather, he was killed at age 65, chasing John Hunt Morgan in his raid Mm -hmm. just a year before, almost the exact day. He gets killed on July 21st, 1863. And the younger McCook is is born on July 22nd, 1834 in Carrollton, Ohio. So he'll be 29 years old here at Kennesaw. He graduated from the University of Alabama, of all places, in Florence. Right. And he studied law in Levensworth, Kansas, where he was a law partner of William T. Sherman, ironically, in the firm of Sherman, Ewing, and Ewing. Mm -hmm. There you go, right? So he fought at Shiloh with the Army of the Ohio. He was a spiritual type, Mary, philosophical type. So um, as his brigade was poised to to exit those woods um, in charge of dead angle, this this is a really good story. They love telling the story there at Kennesaw. He gathers all his men together, and he reads a portion of a poem by Thomas Macaulay called Horatius. I was hoping you'd okay. bring that up. I will. So this is McCook. You're talking the 85th, 86th, 110th, mm-hmm. Illinois, 120th, Illinois, uh, 22nd, Ohio, uh, Indiana, and 82nd, Ohio. So he reads this poem. And I actually, I wrote the, the portion he wrote. He calls his men together, and this is what he says to them. Now, you tell me if you think this is going to inspire you or scare the hell out of you going into battle. But here's what he reads. Then outspoke brave Horatius, the captain of the gate. To every man upon the earth, death cometh soon or late. And how can man die better than facing fearful odds for the ashes of his fathers in the temples of his gods? So he reads that to his guys. Some troops are like, okay. Some guy calls him a heathen. (laughs) Yeah. And so other guys get him fired up. So say what you will about it, but that's... um, Kind of a spooky poem, but okay. Yeah. But he's going to read that. So the, the moments later, the order comes. They're going to cross that Ward Creek, and they're going to head into that opening that I mentioned. They're going to go up that Cheatham Hill towards a dead angle. Tons got shot down almost immediately, um, but some did make it. A lot of guys did make it to that blind spot. Once they got up there, some tried to climb over the breastworks yep. and got shot down almost immediately. 
one group of people who actually really respected the Union for this were the Confederates, ironically. Yeah. You mentioned um, Vaughn in Cheatham's division, right? Yep. He, he's quoted after the battle. He goes, never did men charge into the very jaws of death with a firmer tread and more determination than did the Federals in this attack. Sam Watkins, you mentioned mm-hmm. Company yep, H. I just I had his quote up here from, Tennessee. from him. Well, well, you go ahead and read that quote. He said, yet, the, yet still the Yankees came. It seemed impossible to check the onslaught, but every man was true to his trust and seemed to think that the that at that moment the whole responsibility of the Confederate government was rested upon his soldiers. Talk about other batteries, victories, shouts, cheers, and triumphs, but in comparison with the day's fight, all others dwarf insignificance. So they can't believe that the Yankees are just coming at them and coming at them. Well, he said every rebel killed between 20 and 100 Yankees. Yep. Now, obviously, that's bullshit, but, but the, the reality was... You know, I've never actually shot fish in a barrel before, ever. That's okay. what it was like. But but that's kind of what it was like. It was that type of attack. Well, Claiborne so, and Cheatham just told their men to aim down. And Claiborne at this battle is telling his men to wait to fire until they know their targets. Until they absolutely right. know they can hit them because the, the Union forces are coming at them with bayonets. You know, the the other thing, too, is at, as this is all, all going on, it is 110 degrees so they're fighting in this like crazy heat. Watkins says the sun beaming down on our uncovered heads, the thermometer being 110 degrees in the shade and a solid line of blazing fire right from the muzzles of the Yankee guns being poured right into our very faces, singeing our hair and clothes, the hot blood of our dead and wounded spurting on us, the blinding smoke and stifling atmosphere filling our eyes and mouths and the awful concussion causing the blood to gush out of our noses and our ears. And above all, the roar of battle made it perfect pandemonium. Afterward, I heard a soldier express himself by saying that he thought hell had broke loose in in Georgia. It is absolute brutal carnage. When you're thinking Civil War combat, the dead angle at Kennesaw, you you can have your mule shoe, you can have your pickets charge, you can have Cold Harbor. There's a lot of bad ones. But people need to talk more about the dead angle because it's it's, it's one of those things. Exactly. McCook is going to himself personally is going to get there. So... He's going to reach that breastworks with some of his men, and he's going to try to rally them. So he's going to climb over, at least try to climb over the breastworks. He's going to put one foot up. He's going to try to kick the log over. Yep. And he's going to have a rebel put a musket right into his chest and pull the trigger. He'll live for a little while, but he'll mm-hmm. die on July 17th. Yep. But he's going to be felled. The guy who takes over for him is a guy named Lieutenant Colonel Oscar Harmon. Mm-hmm. He'll be he will take over the he'll take over that brigade. He'll be shot in the head and killed immediately. So by 10 o'clock in the morning, which is almost the same exact time where the Pigeon Hill fighting is falling apart, yep. this one's falling apart. So the assault in Cheatham Hill, like all these others, is swirling the bull at this point. Yeah, it's, it's it's done. So the soldiers are close to the breastworks. They're stuck there. Some will try to escape. Some are just going to stay. They're smart, though, because some of the soldiers, they're going to try to dig in. They don't know how long they're going to be there, but they need to protect themselves. They're going to kind of build these mini breastworks themselves. And it's going to ultimately be something to protect themselves. And so by then, for the most part, the Battle of Kennesaw Mountain is kind of over. It, yeah, right? it is. Yeah. At around 1045, Thomas sends a message telling him that the attack has failed. Thomas suggests that they need to do something in the way of a siege. But but Sherman says, no, absolutely not. We got to keep attacking. And Thomas is like, fuck that. We can't. So he sends a message to his core commanders. So Oliver Otis Howard being one of them. And Howard sends messages to to his men and one of them is newton who is attacking right he he's there at cheatham hill and newton is like nope we can't do this 
Jefferson C. Davis sends a message back to saying, we can't, we need reinforcements. And that's the thing, mm-hmm. you know, they have not sent in all their, all their numbers. This Union Army that's here fighting at Kennesaw Mountain, as we've talked about, is absolutely gigantic. At Cheatham Hill and, and the Dead Angle, there are 8,000 men fighting. And they could have, they, they did have the, you know, they did have the troops, but I think Sherman is basically seeing if this is going to work. Well, Sherman did, he wanted, I mean, he used less than 20% of his soldiers in this yeah. entire battle. And it was, they got mowed down. You mentioned Thomas, he had that quote where he goes, we lost significantly today without gaining any material advantage. Yeah. So, so they knew it was over and that's probably why he held them back. Sherman wants to keep fighting. He wants to keep going. And he decides, he realizes basically futile. So by nightfall on the 27th of June, it's pretty much over. Now, Joseph Johnston, he's all excited, Mary. Now, remember, Davis hates him, right? Yeah. So he he writes a letter to Richmond. And I have to think, he says, please let him know I have my middle finger in the air as I'm writing this. Yeah. He probably did. He writes, the enemy advanced upon our whole line and their losses are believed to be great. Ours are known to be small. He he deliberately, he fudges the numbers. And it's really interesting. Post-Civil War, he apparently writes in a, a newspaper article or a magazine article where he changes the numbers a little bit. In, in Hess's book, he talks about this, about how he's like fudging the numbers. I watched another lecture too about it. And it's basically because it's going to be his greatest victory in this campaign because he hasn't had like really a victory yet. It's been constantly this this kind of cat and mouse game with Sherman and he's had a lot of heavy losses. So he's trying to be like, yeah, it's not as bad as what we thought. But then like, and Sherman got pissed when he found out that Johnston exaggerated his own losses. And he talks about it in his memoirs. Like he mentions, he's like, yeah, here's mine. And here's Johnston's. And Johnston um, had a lot more than what he said. So I mean, just real quick, go back to that dead, that dead angle battle. There's, there's, there's some good there, humanity story, there, stories there as well. Is, so yeah. So while this is all going on, they, there's a temporary truce called because what's going on is a lot of Claiborne's men are firing these guns. And it's lighting the woods on yeah. fire, the grass on fire. A Colonel William Martin of the 1st and 15th Arkansas, yeah. he sees a lot of these Union soldiers injured and they can't move. Just take a Chancellorsville. You're in the woods. Yeah. The fire is going to burn. You can't move. He raises a white flag to stop the battle. He calls a timeout. He does this so the Union could drag their wounded off the field is what he does. But it's interesting, though, because... Many of the Rebs and the Feds, while this is going on, they start talking and mingling. They do. They start yeah. hanging, hanging. Some play cards. Yeah. Some trade coffee and tobacco. And they just shoot the shit for a little while. Yeah. Just talking about the battle. Then, I don't know if someone blew a whistle or the timeout horn went off. They all went back to their sides again and started fighting again. It was just one of those weird stories. You know, it's like the, almost like an Angel Marie's Heights kind of in yeah. a way. At, at Fredericksburg, but well, just the whole boys. This is butchery quote from from Martin, and then he said, "Cease fire and help get those men. They are burning to death. We won't fire a gun until you get them away." There's other stories of that that happen too at night, where you have the dead and wounded, like well, the the dead are not moving, but the wounded, they actually start crawling over the Confederate breastworks for help. And there, well, you was, know, the walk, the Walking Dead is filmed in Georgia, so maybe they I know. Are. Well, they could be. Kennesaw well, Walking Dead. Uh, there was I, one story. I <laughs> what? I don't watch The Walking Dead. Oh, you miss out. You totally I've never seen out. it. I've never seen it. Well, you watch The Indians. It's the same thing. So whatever. Fucker. Anyway, there was one story that I read where a wounded Union soldier called out for, for the Confederates to come help him and take him behind their lines and all that. And of course, you do that. You're going to become a prisoner. So one, one Confederate soldier went over to get him and he ends up getting shot in the neck. 
well, both the Union and the Confederate soldier survive. But what this Confederate soldier does is he finds out this guy's name. And when he's in a one of the hospitals, he sends the guy food and he makes sure he's he's fed until this guy ends up getting exchanged. So there's a lot of these very like human like stories of where these men are forgetting, you know, what they're fighting for, that they're enemies and they're helping each other out. Like they it's quite clear that they've seen the carnage that is happening on Cheatham Hill. And and Watkins makes a remark that even what he's writing, he can't you, you still can't describe it all with a pen. You still cannot describe the carnage with a with a pen. And to me it seemed that in that way, I think this is like the Union's version of the Battle of Franklin. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a good comparison. I mean, they got they got ripped up pretty good. Now, what's interesting was the battle ends, but the armies stay where they are for a few days. Mm-hmm. So, so you have kind of the standoff where you have Claiborne's guys up on in a you know up and Cheatham's guys up on the dead angle, with the Union's in that breastworks hidden underneath them, and they just once in a while they'll try to shoot at them, but they just stand yeah. there. So the Union they're running out of food; they don't know what the hell to do. So without orders. They decide they're going to dig a tunnel that's going to go under the the Confederate breastworks, yep. and then they're going to blow it up. Mm-hmm. And for some reason, they thought they could do it on July fourth, like fireworks. They thought they could have it done. So by July third, they got about twenty five feet away. And if you go to visit Cheatham Hill now, you can still see the tunnel. You can still yep. see it, right? And so July third comes, they wake up in the morning, and the Rebs are gone. What? They just took off. They they vacated. All the breastworks are empty. And, and the reason why was out of all the things that went wrong in this battle, one thing went right. Remember how Schofield was, was doing the diversion? He found a way out on the Union right that got around the Confederates. So mm-hmm. he found a way that the Union could still flank Johnson. Uh, so Sherman hears this and he says, holy crap, we, we found our get-out-of-jail-free card. Yeah. So thanks to Schofield they basically find a way to get around and flank them again. So that's what he does. Now, Johnston is going to figure this thing out at some point. And before he gets flanked, he withdraws. So just like all those before, those previous battles, as soon as Sherman's about to flank him, he falls back. And that's exactly what happened. So that morning of July 3rd, when those soldiers go on those breastworks at that angle, that's what happened. They were called to fall back. So they, so they fell back. So, He's going to fall back. Johnston is back to the um, that Chattahoochee River. I yep. have to say it perfectly now, Mary. You notice I couldn't say yep. it before? So they're going to fall back. Now we're talking July 7th, July 8th. And, and they're going to end up falling back again. And there's that good story where the Union gets to the Chattahoochee River. And the first thing the dudes do is they strip and jump in the water. Yep, and Sherman joins the first, them. And Sherman. Now, I'll be honest. You haven't bathed in weeks. And you'd strip your clothes off. you jump in the water. And then the boss jumps in. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure. You know how that's going to work out, but he does. And so that leads into the episode we did previously about the Atlanta campaign. Yep. So we'll kind of stop that part of it here. But it's interesting, though. So when you look at this, these two armies, you have, you know, you have this gigantic conglomerate, three armies on the Union side, a hundred thousand, hundred ten thousand guys, depending on who you read. They put in 16,000 guys into this battle out yep. of so out of all of them. And they take 3,000 casualties, which doesn't sound like a lot when you think of 100,000 guys, right? But mm-hmm. 3,000, but it's the quality of those casualties. Well, yeah, exactly. And it's it how many were put in and the fact that Jefferson C. Davis, you know, he's one of these ones he's saying, we need reinforcements. And two, I think 
you know, you and I were talking before this episode about how, you know, the the numbers are just, we're trying to figure out the numbers and why Sherman has done what he's doing here. But I think that it goes back to that letter that he wrote to Ellen on June the 26th, 1864, where he's basically saying that this is going to be a disaster. And I think he's deliberately holding back the men because he knows if he throws in too many, it, it is going to be absolutely disastrous. Like he could have lost a lot here. He got lucky he didn't lose more. And this is, I think, one of his worst moments in the Civil War is here. Um, Howard says of it, we realize now as never before the futility of direct assault upon our entrenched lines. Howard knew going into this, I think, that they were fucked. But too, you look at how Howard writes about it, that this is a guy that has seen a lot so far in the Civil War. He's He's seen, you know, he was at Seven Pines fighting against Johnston. So this is not his first time facing Johnston. He has already fought against Patrick Claiborne at a few of the fights in the Atlanta campaign. But he's also been at Gettysburg. And he's making these comparisons saying, this is like Cemetery Hill, a little round top. This is so much more than that. And he's seeing that Johnston has a better position than Meade ever did you know, and Sherman's going up against that. So I think that's really telling in in what Howard has to say about that, especially the little round top, which I think he's thrown a little bit of shade at Chamberlain for that, saying, well, like, saying like, stop, like saying, basically saying, stop bragging about it because guess what, dude, there was, mm-hmm. there was other things going on at the time. But yeah, and, and Johnston praises the federal soldiers in this saying, the federal troops were in greater force and deeper order and pressed forward with the resolution always displayed by the American soldier when properly led. I think, though, that Kennesaw and this whole thing leading up to it is where Sherman really starts to get a respect on for Johnston, that he's realizing that this guy is somebody that he's going to have a tough fight against because you see his reaction to when Hood comes into being the leader, he kind of breathes that sigh of relief that we talked about when we did the episode about the Atlanta campaign that you know, he's asking Schofield, what's this guy like? And Schofield's like, uh, he'll fight you. He's not going to do what Johnson did. And that's when Sherman finally realized like, yep. And it's also after Kennesaw too, that Sherman realizes Atlanta needs to be his objective and not destroying Johnson's army, which is kind of going a little bit against, you know, how Lincoln wanted things to go with getting to the armies, not necessarily the cities, but you know, Atlanta, Sherman knows at this point he needs Atlanta because of that 1864 election. Right, it, it you know it, it's brutal, and and we talked before. You mentioned Franklin, and we've mentioned places like you know Antietam and places like that. I think the only reason why this wasn't at that level was because they they fought with one arm behind their back. I mean, the Union puts in sixteen thousand guys, the Rebels put in seventeen thousand guys, so three thousand casualties in the Union, one thousand for the Confederates. If they put all their armies in. This would have been a historical bloodbath. Historical. Oh, absolutely. Now, the, I mean, the quality of the fighting was vicious. The ground was vicious, and the only thing that kept the numbers from being at a one-day Antietam level twenty thousand plus casualties was the fact they didn't put as many people in. And you wonder how tempted Sherman might have been to go all in and push all the chips to the front of the table. But I think he knew he couldn't have a pyrrhic victory here where they win. And he loses half of his army because he still has to get to Atlanta. Yeah, you still got to get to Atlanta. You're not done yet, right? You know, and then what happens if he gets to Atlanta? He's got to fight Hood again. Now he's damaged goods. Now he's the army of Tennessee instead of the army of the Tennessee. (laughs) And he's right. He's lost a a word. (laughs) 
Well, I'm mean, saying so the quality so by maybe his army is the broken down one in North Carolina. Mm-hmm. So say what you will about Sherman. He was more the tactician while this is going on. Grant is doing his thing with his meat cleaver over there in Virginia. Yeah. He's and so I think it's interesting, but I think Sherman knew he had to tread lightly, but he had to get to Atlanta. The goal was Atlanta, not Kennesaw Mountain. Yeah. Although he did want to beat Johnston, but he didn't want to throw away the baby with the bathwater here and lose his entire army just to beat Johnston have nothing left to fight in. in well, Atlanta. he had no choice but to. Like he's he's writing to Halleck saying that, you know, Kennesaw is the key and he realizes that. But you know, the 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 other thing they achieve in this in early July is they managed to get it across the Chattahoochee River, which was the last geographical barrier between them and Atlanta. Um, he writes to Halleck after Kennesaw and says, I cannot well turn the position of the enemy without abandoning my railroad. And we are already so far from our supplies that it is as much the road can do to feed and supply the army. There are no supplies of any kind here. I can press Johnston and keep him from reinforcing Lee, but to assault him in the position will cost us more lives than we can spare. So he's saying at this point, I can't risk it. Thomas tells him after Kennesaw, one or two more assaults will use up this army. In other words, you can't do this again. And so that's, you know, that right there tells you this is why he has not thrown in all the troops that he possibly can, because as you said, it would have been an absolute bloodbath. You know, you've got men like Howard that have remarked, there's no way we could have taken those. There's better positioning than Meade had at Gettysburg. And it was a tougher fight than we, than it was a tougher fight for Howard than what he had at Gettysburg. I know some would say that Howard didn't really fight at Gettysburg, but well, I, I this think is a guy I, who's seen a lot, you know, no. I think as you we tie a bow on this one, okay, it, it, it's the big picture is the Union did take a bad loss. Sherman got pantsed got by Claiborne. Johnston. Okay, he did. Claiborne got him too, but he was able to live to fight another day. And I think that's the big picture. Now, one unheralded hero with this is Schofield, mm-hmm. but he did find door number three. Yeah. And if they didn't find door number three, he probably would have had to try to fight again. It's funny how you get lucky sometimes, you, you get fortunate, and you, sometimes you make your own luck. But they were able to flank around them, get to Atlanta, and the rest is uh, is history, as they say, as yeah. the, uh, as went from there. So anyway, so takeaways from this one again, I think I think Sherman learned a valuable lesson yeah. about frontal attacks, yeah. about recklessly exposing himself yeah. frontally. I think he, and that showed going forward. I think he, it showed a respect for life by Sherman that we, again, we saw when we get to Bentonville and some of the later battles with him, for some reason he has that monster of being this bloodthirsty type of villain. And I think he, I think he was somebody who also did focus on his own lives and his own soldiers lives. And I think that's why the soldiers ended up liking him, especially after the war. I think so too. Yeah, he was, I mean, that's why he's known as uncle Billy. Right. And I think on the, you know, on the Confederate side of things, the MVPs here are obviously going to be Claiborne and Cheatham. Like, you know, Johnson has placed his two most brilliant, well, Claiborne, especially commanders at this position at Cheatham Hill. And, you know, like Howard has Howard has faced him before and he must have thought, fuck, it's the damn Irish guy again. You know, that's why I say like Sherman and Howard are getting Claiborne here again. He's good at this battle. I, I think he is. And I think you know, with, with many, of these, many of these battles as, as they go on, I think it's a situation where, you know, you have to look at the big picture. And so many of these guys were small picture. John Bell Hood was small picture. I think that speaks better of Johnston, too. Right. Yep. When you look at the when the overall picture. Yep. But I think that is Sherman, as bad as this was for him, he learned his lessons. But more importantly, he did live to fight another day. We talked about Lee at Chancellorsville, right? What would have happened if on that May 5th he got to attack? He would have got mowed down. Mm-hmm. So he lived to fight another day by sheer luck. 
Whereas I think this one was a situation where I think I think Sherman was a little more fortunate because he did make that choice that we have to keep flanking again. We can't attack Brunley. So yeah. So I think um, that's the big picture with Kennesaw. So what's next? So next we actually, um, so if you're listening to this on Saturday morning, we are going to be doing our Facebook live at 10 o'clock. We have our book club meeting on the 30th, where we are going to be discussing about Sherman, uh, Dr. Anne Sarah Rubin's book, Through the Heart of Dixie, which is about the March to the Sea and historical memory. It's an excellent book. Um, It's not a very long book. So if you haven't read it yet, you probably still have time to read it before a book club. And even if you haven't read it, you can still come and join us for the discussion too. Um, and it might inspire you to read it. So if you have not signed up for a book club yet, info at civilwarbreakfastclub.com. And one of us will send you the Zoom invite for that. And another thing to remind you about, and we have some good news to report on this, is Darren got a call uh, today. So well, when this drops on Saturday, it'll be a few days ago, but from one of the senator's offices in Maine about our Charles Tilden petition that we have to get him the Medal of Honor. So We do have that petition going. It is pinned to the top of our Twitter page right now. So you can click on that and sign that petition. And the other thing we have going on is we are doing a fundraiser for Civil War Trails. Um, So we have the links for that. We are raising money for them. And we're going to be giving away five autograph books to for every $5 you donate, you get entered into a draw to win an autograph book. All right. So good stuff coming down the pike. So um, any final words from you, Fincheru? Um, Oh, yeah, just that our um, our next episode, so a week from Saturday, our next episode, we're going to be wrapping up our discussion of Vicksburg on July the 3rd. Uh, no, we are not going to be talking Gettysburg. We'll be talking Gettysburg the week after that. But anyway, so yeah, so off we go again. So we look forward to our live on Saturday. Look forward to the book club. And there's always a surprise, the book club. So we'll see what this one is. We'll yeah. find out. And so read the book if you haven't. Again, hit that petition with Charles Tilden because I feel... Like there's some motion and something in motion with Charles Tilden. We shall find out. Yeah. And uh, hopefully we'll see what happens with that. So again, again, Mary, great time as always. Good discussion, Kennesaw. If you haven't been to Kennesaw Mountain, definitely visit it. It's a fantastic visit. And we will uh, talk more and we'll get into Vicksburg coming up down the road. So off we go. And again, always a pleasure. Yep. You too. Anyway, guys, right. have a great All night right. or a great day. Peace Later, out. Guys. Bye.